Welcome to the expert series brought to you by the Lupus Foundation of America. Our health education team is here to bring you experts in lupus to discuss topics to help you live better. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. My name is Lauren and I'll be your host. Today I am very excited to welcome Dr. Owen Garrick, who will be sharing information about trust and participation in research. Dr. Garrick is the president and CEO of Bridge Clinical Research, a global clinical research and health communications firm focused on drug development, scientific advancement, and patient engagement. Dr. Garrick leads the clinical trials, research analytics, health services research, and healthcare communication business units. He has helped launch multiple collaborative efforts in advancing precision medicine research. He serves as an advisor to the Stanford Precision Health for Ethnic and Racial Equity Center, SPHERE, which is one of five NIH centers focused on precision medicine tools to improve the health of underserved ethnic and racial groups. Thank you, Dr. Garrick, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's just get started. Today we're going to talk about clinical research, and um, I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> so um, right. I'm very honored to speak with you about the work that you do and the importance of diverse representation in clinical research. So for starters, can you tell us a little bit about what got you as a physician interested in clinical trials or specifically with research in general? Appreciate the question. You know, it's interesting. I, probably like many folks, had a misperception uh, about research. I've, I've always been pre-med since I was a kid. And it wasn't until college that my view of research changed. You know, beforehand, you know, it was, you know, I thought researchers were all folks who worked in a lab, you know, under a hood. And, you know, they worked on some random molecule, molecule X5B3. And that molecule, you know, they worked on that for 40 years, and that molecule either became something or it didn't, right? And maybe they published some 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 papers about it. And it, it was interesting. It wasn't until uh, my work study job in college, when I worked uh, for a professor in the psychology department, and he was doing a bunch of social science experiments, right? And I saw that research was much more than just working in a lab. Right? You can actually, you, you did interact with individuals, right? That's so sort of the, the clinical part, right? The interacting with uh, people. And that got me interested in, uh, much more interested in research and actually helped me major in psychology um, and continue sort of my path uh, down that road. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't an obvious thing for me. And frankly, it, even after that really, really good experience, uh, a career in research wasn't something I was thinking about. You know, I do research full time now. And it was really an evolution. I got involved with this company a little over 10 years ago. And, you know, our mission here is to increase diversity in clinical trials. And I just saw the value in that mission um, as a way of really impacting uh, and reducing health health inequalities and improving health care for minority populations. That is so important what you just talked about. Your focus as is your organization to increase diversity in clinical trials and research. And in fact, we've worked together with LFA and with you on a past program called Indeed. Impact, increasing minority participation in clinical trials. So we, we've done that together in the past. So we're so excited to 
again, share some information with our, our listeners. And so can you share a little bit more about why is it important to have diversity in lupus research? Sure. You know, very broadly, even outside of, say, lupus research, the, the basics of research is that, or are that you, you, you look at a small population or a small group, right? So you can't study everyone, right, that, say, has lupus or has high blood pressure or, um, you know, um, anything, you know, diabetes, right? So you look at a small group, and that small group, that study population or sample size, should reflect the larger population, right? Because you're studying the small group to, uh, and you want to extrapolate or, or use those results for the larger population. So if you look at individuals with lupus, you want a diverse group or set of individuals that have lupus that are in your study population or sample um, because you can then extrapolate and say, hey, the findings from this group of four or 500 individuals, we think, um, reflects and is meaningful for the larger population of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals with lupus worldwide. So that's mm -hmm. the basic idea, right? Small group should be comparable to the larger group that you're going to say, hey, this, this drug, this intervention, this therapy um, worked or didn't work in the small group, so it should um, uh, be as effective or have some of the same issues for the larger group. That's the basic idea, and that's just the math, the statistics behind it. So when we think about lupus in particular, um, and you know, you given your work at uh, LSA know this um, very well, and I'm sure many of the listeners do. Mm -hmm. You know, there is an overburden of disease um, in terms of lupus in minority populations. So that could be a yeah. function of things like environment where. Maybe they don't, they, they get diagnosed a little later, right, and have more um, progressive disease as a function of later diagnosis, or it could be biology or genetics, right, where an individual of a certain uh, ethnic background or racial background, you know, has a slightly different um, biology, slightly different uh, genetic um, uh, background that predisposes her or him, her or him to um, a more uh, progressive form of, of lupus, right? And so if you have, you need those populations um, represented in a clinical research study to be able to see just that. Are you seeing these differences? We call it subgroup analysis, right? The fancy word of just saying, or fancy way of just saying, are you seeing these differences between and within groups? And without that representation in a clinical trial, you just can't know that you won't know that because you just don't have enough of the individuals to be able to compare one group versus the other. So that's the basic idea around the importance of, of diversity in, in clinical research. So it's the basic math and statistics, and then the fact that you just have, you just see this increased burden, um, more numbers of individuals from different backgrounds, ethnicities that have lupus, than you would expect given their percentage of the population. So the ability to figure that out, right, begin to understand why that is and then have some appropriate interventions where you improve the lives and health outcomes of the diverse populations with lupus. Um, that all starts by having 
this diverse representation in clinical trials. And in terms of what sorts of research people you know, can participate in, so I'll start with what we do. We do clinical research, right, and late stage. So there are different stages. There's, you know, very, and they're very creatively called phases one, two, and three. You know, it's one, it's really the early stuff, right, where they are just testing or first testing in human beings a new drug or a new therapy. And then phase three, where we are, is where, um, I mean, you figured out, you, you know that it's relatively safe, it's relatively effective, you figured out the dosing, and then phase three, you're looking at it in a much larger population. Um, you know, and that could be several hundred, several thousand in terms of, you know, the number of individuals that participate in the study. So that's the clinical research, right? And that's the drug part, right? Studying new drugs. You could also study new devices, right? So there's both the, um, the drugs and the drugs could be what we call large molecules and small molecules. So small molecules, think about things like um, aspirin and ibuprofen, right? Things you can swallow. Large molecules tend to be things like uh, vaccines or anything that needs to be infused or injected, right? So those are different sorts of molecules and then obviously, you know, all sorts of different devices. Individuals with lupus have issues around kidney function, so you can have a device that actually monitors your kidney function and you can participate in a trial to evaluate that. And then you can also look at, you know, non-drug, non-device studies, right? So understanding what is how a lupus patient interacts with the healthcare system, right? Because one of the issues that, once again, you know, you and many of your listeners, uh, I'm sure, are aware of, there is this difficulty in diagnosis, right? It often takes such a long time to diagnose that an individual has lupus. Mm -hmm. So you can participate in a study to help figure that out, right? So that's more than the interaction with the healthcare system. So those are, you know, just a couple of examples of um, types of research that, you know, could lead, frankly, to improved uh, health care and health outcomes for individuals with lupus. And it sounds like no matter what kind of research there is being done, diversity is important in every single kind of research along every step of the way. And is that what we would call precision medicine? Can you tell us a little bit about what that word means? And maybe you already did, but if you could just tell us a little about what that is, because it's such a big part of what you do. Sure. So, so the answer to, to yes, op, diversity op, um, absolutely matters. And it really, at the end of the day, it matters because you test these new therapies and you want to make sure they work in all populations, right? So if, the, yeah. if, the, if a certain group of individuals, um, say men or women or people from the Northeast, right? Mm -hmm. or whites or blacks or Hispanics or Asians are not participating, you can't be certain that these new therapies work well in them. And you can't understand um, as much what the side effects might be, right? The bad things that happen mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, taking drugs. And so if you think about that as a backdrop in this issue of um, this new field or expanding field of precision medicine, now, precision medicine is a way to analyze at least at, say, a subgroup level or even an individual level, you know, what, um, based on genetics, you know, how, um, 
of what drugs should be most effective. So a, a very simple example, right? When I take, uh, if I have a headache, I take acetaminophen or Tylenol for that headache, right? Ibuprofen, you know, the brand names are like Advil or Aleve or aspirin just don't work, work as well with me, right? So there's something in my biology Right, something precise or re relative to me, that's the precision part, that makes Tylenol or acetaminophen work better for my headache. Right, so if you think about, now that could be a function of, I'm just making this up, right, that could be, a, a, you know, because I'm a guy, right, or it could be something in my biology. Um, or could you, I just, you know, maybe, you know, Tylenol was the first thing I take and it's just in my mind. Like, I just think it works better and, you know, everything actually works the same. So the ability to figure out precisely what sort of therapies work for you as an individual with lupus or, or lupus nephritis or any other um, uh, issues around lupus is this notion of precision medicine. So the way you would, sort of the entry level, right, is getting your DNA analyzed, right, and looking at um, your DNA as sort of a group, you know, say ethnicity, you know, you want to look at the DNA of all populations and see if there are minor differences in the genetic code for, you know, the areas that say um, govern kidney function or autoimmune function, right, and are there differences between different groups? And those could be racial and ethnic groups. And if there are, can you then begin to design drugs that work on, say, some of those genetic differences? And if you if you don't have the individuals in the group in from different groups that are one given their DNA to be analyzed, you never know. You can't determine if there are any differences, right? Because you just don't have their genetic information in, in large enough numbers to be able to compare to other groups, right? So you might, right. as we mentioned earlier, discussed earlier, right, certain groups have an overburden, you know, more progressive disease. And you can begin to precisely, the precision part, analyze their DNA to see if that's, if there are genetic components, right? And if they are not participating in that precision medicine research, you just don't know that, right? So that is, that's the the beauty of precision medicine, right? You you can begin to design therapies and interventions that work very you know effectively um, mm -hmm. and best for one group. But if that the, the the flip side is if that one group isn't participating, they have the mm -hmm. potential to be you know left out. And historically, Absolutely. right, there is this. You know, historically, there is an underrepresentation of people of color in clinical research generally, mm -hmm. right? And so, mm -hmm. precision medicine, you know, while there is great promise, there's also great risk in that those, um, those, those different, you know, that underrepresentation is further exacerbated, right? And so, you are then not developing these very, you know, um, precise. Um, therapies for people of color. Gotcha. And that's exactly what the NIH is, is funding, these centers for precision medicine. And it's exciting to see that that is a focus for the future of drug development. Um, exactly. And I really love the example that you used about the way that, you, you know, acetaminophen or ibuprofen might work differently for you. And I think it's important to note that both of them are available to you on the market. It's not 
it's not that one of them is excluded for use. They're both available. So you might be taking something that isn't, isn't right for you unless that research is there to show how it might work in, in your body or in a, in a group that uh, represents, you know, the same, the same background or the same um, DNA. I think that's a great example. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep. That, that is exactly right. So I could, so I, you know, I know by trial and error that Tylenol works best for me, right? Using that mm -hmm. same example. So, but if I kept just taking aspirin, you know, for mm -hmm. my entire life, my headaches just wouldn't be as controlled, mm -hmm. right? So that would eventually lead to worse health outcomes, right? Because I couldn't be as effective mm -hmm. um, in in life in general. And that just leads to just, you know, worse, the, the, the limited ability or less of an ability to just enjoy life, right? Because when you have health issues, that's what it comes down to. Absolutely. And how it affects your day-to-day -day and how it's really interesting to hear how passionately you talk about participation and, and research. And I know it's a huge decision for people to make. And for some people, it's, it's an easy decision. They're just, yes, I absolutely want to be involved. But for some people, they have some applications about participating in research. Mm -hmm. um, so just to break it down as simple and as truthful as possible, how can we, how do we build trust for people who may be apprehensive in participating in research? Um, are there certain measures in place and how, how best can we meet people where they are so that they feel confident moving forward to help the future of health for, for people with lupus? And that's a great question. You know, what I have found over the years is that people People participate in clinical research for really two reasons at the end of the day. One, they were asked by their doctor, right? So this, this note that, that gets to this notion of being aware that a clinical research study exists, mm -hmm. right? And that gets to the trust part. So that they, and it could be their doctor, their clinician, someone with whom they have a trusted relationship, right? So it is awareness and trust. And the awareness part, right, organizations like LFA are doing a great part in creating awareness about potential clinical trials. So the, the impact um, project that I was involved with a few, a few years ago, you know, that was part of, you know, a component of that was this issue of awareness. The other component was mm -hmm. how do you create trust, right, and who are the best messengers to, to deliver this um, to create awareness and talk about participation in a clinical trial. So yes, and I think you know if we stick with this notion of trust, there are a couple parts, right? There are there are well, I'll talk about the you know the researcher or doctor part, right? We do okay. generally a poor job at explaining healthcare period to patients, right? You know, <laughs> right. you know, I I get calls, if not every week, certainly every other week from family members saying, hey, I went to my doctor. I don't quite understand what he or she said. Can you help me? Can you right. translate it for me, right? So when you, that's generally in terms of um, physicians, clinicians, and our ability to communicate health information, and that health information could be complex, it may not be. And that spills over into communicating uh, information about a research study. So we need to do a better job of explaining all the risks and benefits of participating. And I think when you do that effectively, 
that is part of building trust. So someone actually understands what you are talking about, right? And, and they understand it because you took the time to sit down with them and explain to them what was going on or what could potentially happen in a, in a research study. And you took the time out of your day and your, you know, your busy schedule um, to answer any and all their questions, right? So that um, is, is, I think, a biggest component of, or one of the biggest components of building or rebuilding trust, especially when we think about diverse populations, really figuring out, like I mentioned, how to explain in simple terms um, what, what might happen in a, in a clinical trial. And you go through that usually during when you, there's something called an informed consent process or document, right? Mm -hmm. And this informed, the, the informed consent means you know, the informed part is you understand what is, you know, what might happen if you participate in a clinical trial, right? That's the information part. The consent is that you agree to it, right? So you fully understand all the good things that could happen, right? I.e. your lupus improves and all the bad things that could happen, could, which could be, hey, nothing actually happens, right? Nothing mm -hmm. in terms, you know, right. the drug isn't effective. And all drugs um, have side effects. So you can be exposed to, you know, a side effect of a drug and have no benefit in terms of your lupus. So you have that information in this informed consent interaction, you know, and you, you agree to it. You consent to participate. So I have found that when researchers and clinicians take the time to fully explain a research um, study, people of color participate. Um, and it's when you don't present information in a clear fashion that you have challenges. And, you know, folks will speak about, hey, historical abuses around um, uh, treatment of minority populations. They will speak about issues around, you know, lack of transportation, you know, lack of insurance, and all those things are true, right? And those things, mm -hmm. you know, as clinicians, we mm -hmm. don't necessarily have the ability to change any of that, and as researchers, right? But we do have the ability to, um, and, and, and it starts with us really understanding a clinical trial, and the better I have found, at least for myself, the better I understand, the more I understand something, the easier it is for me to explain it. And so right. when we take the time to, like I said, just stop speaking what I call doctorese and talk to individuals in very clear, concise ways, you know, they then, you know, become, I think, you know, much more aware of what they might be getting into and can make and often do make um, uh, much more informed decisions and, and many times those that decision is to participate. That's generally how I look at it, right? So what it is as a researcher I can control, right? And all this other stuff about, you know, your socioeconomics, your access to healthcare, I don't have much control over. But right. the, the amount of time I take to explain something to you um, is, is absolutely something I have control over. That's so true. And then also knowing that, you know, if, if you were to get started in a, a, a research, in, in some kinds of research, are there opportunities for discontinuing if, if you don't want to or, or 
um, stopping and saying, I need more information about this before going forward. Are those kind of parameters in place as well to get not just in the beginning of the process, but throughout the entire process to get information um, and to provide feedback on, you know, how how is this trial affecting me if it's a drug trial for sure being able to give the feedback of how I'm feeling is really important so um, can you tell me just a little bit about that process and how long it might take what that variation might be and um, what other support people are maybe there to make sure that someone is continually you know who's, in, who's involved in it is continuing to get the information that they need and they uh, are feeling supported throughout and that is a great and fantastic point so you know, I when I first described informed consent, I described it as a process. It, it should be a process, right, and not just a form you sign at the beginning of a research uh, study and never think about again. So, and to your point, in most, if not all, in fact, in all informed consent documents, you will see something to the effect of, you can withdraw, even if you agree to participate, you can withdraw at any time for any reason, and that decision, you know, will not, uh, we will not hold that decision against you, um, hold back care, talk bad about you, et cetera, right? And that is fundamentally true, right? So you, and you don't have to give a reason, you know, it could just be Thursday, you know, on, right. if you call me on a Thursday, I decide I'm not gonna participate. Right, mm -hmm. and you just say, hey, I just mm -hmm. don't want to do it. So if, if there are any issues, you can bring that forward, and if it can be worked on, work on it. But if it's, you know, basically I don't want to continue anymore, then then people still have that right as well. They absolutely have the right. And th now the good, the good research staff will ask why, right? Because, and not to pressure you to do it, but to if you're having obstacles, maybe my other patients or the other research participants are having obstacles. And let's say one of those challenges is transportation, right? And, 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 and that, that's valid. And many times you will have allowances in a research budget to provide or pay for transportation, right? Another obstacle might just be, hey, I just can't do, you're only open you know, for the research study Monday through Friday. Fridays, right, from nine to five, and that's when I, you know, most of us work during that time. So a, a research staff may start thinking because of that, you know, this issue just doesn't apply to you. Let, let, well, let's think about having some hours on the weekend. So that should be, I mean, that's the great way, a great way um, or the best way to have this dialogue. It, it, it's regular, okay. it go, it's bi-directional, right, and there's no pressure around it. Now, you know, that's the ideal and what, you know, what probably should exist. Unfortunately, that's not always the case, right? And it starts at the beginning. If you look at these informed consent documents, you know, they're like when you, when you go to a, on a, you know, you're on a website and you, there's a button to, to click to say you have read the privacy agreement. Um, most of us just click it because when we click on the actual privacy agreement, it's like 80 pages of a bunch of legalese that we can't understand. Yeah. Right. right. So oftentimes, right. Yeah, unfortunately, these informed consent documents are just that, right? Mm -hmm. Very long, very complicated. Now, the way that I would advise individuals to get around that, and when I say individuals, you know, potential research participants, is one, you know, you're not going to be able to digest 
an 80-page document in 10 minutes, right? So take it home, take some time to look through it. Invariably, there's a component of that, you know, within those 80 pages, right? There'll be a diagram of typically of all the visits and all the things that will happen in a study. That is the thing, that diagram or chart would be something that I would ask the research staff to walk me through, right? Because that would explain everything that you might experience, right? And so that is, that is hopefully, you know, something very practical some of the listeners can take, take away from this conversation. Yeah, that's a great tip. That's really a great tip, I think. And I love how you talk about that bi-directional communication. And I feel like that, for for me and hopefully for others, kind of lifts that burden of having to decide something very quickly in the office that is a big decision. Um, knowing that there are groups out there, research groups and physicians that want to make sure that informed consent is continual process and that people participating um, can communicate if they do have obstacles to continuing care and that they can, can you know, stop if they wish to as well without, um, you know, just, just stop if they want, want to. Best research staff will be proactive, right? So they won't wait for you to say, hey, I'm having this issue. You know, during their, your, your study visits or in between, you know, they'll do a, a, a better job of checking with you to see, are there any issues, right? And if there are issues that other research participants are facing, you know, they might ask proactively, you know, are you facing the same issues? Because, hey, here's, Here's how we worked around or worked with other individuals that are having transportation issues, childcare issues, um, the you know the need to do or to come in on a weekend. You know, COVID has um, I think one of the good things that well not you know a you know a, a benefit of the pandemic right is that we've all gotten used to doing things using technology. Right, so now a lot of research staff in the positions or the coordinators are comfortable doing stuff over the phone or video conference, right? So that uh-huh. frees up mm-hmm. um, and removes some of the burdens that um, might have historically been in place. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think about all the information that you've shared today, and it really makes research seem accessible and exciting and like a very great responsibility and to be able to engage and to help the future of people who get lupus. And that's really what this is all about is just, you know, making sure we we get resources out there for people and we allow a platform for questions if anyone has them. You know, one thing that I would sort of make obvious when, when we think about diverse and minority communities, you know, I think the mistake we as a research community often make is that, these uh, individuals, this group, this population, either can't understand complex healthcare terms or don't want to understand, right? And I think, I know my experience has been the opposite is true. There's a real thirst for knowledge, right? And that knowledge needs to be presented or, you know, to be more effective, can be presented in a more digestible fashion. But there really is this thirst to understand, to become aware, to participate. And I have just found when we as clinicians, research coordinators, are more effective communicators, 
we see that that engagement from these diverse populations at similar levels, if not even greater levels than the general population. That'd be one thing that, you know, for the for the clinicians and researchers that are listening, that that has just been my experience over the, you know, 10, 20 years that I've been um, active in research. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with any of the providers listening in. I think uh, today you've made it very clear and have been very helpful in really sharing with us why it's important to have underserved ethnic and racial groups represented in clinical research and clinical trials. And I thank you so much uh, for joining us. Lauren, it's, it's been my pleasure. And thank you and Lupus Foundation of America for all the great work you do on behalf of lupus patients. Thank you so much, Dr. Garrick, for your time today. I hope that those of you listening in enjoy Dr. Garrick's information on clinical trials, the importance of precision medicine, and how we can build trust and participation in clinical trials. If you're intrigued about what you learned today, I would like to invite you to check out our new research platform, Ray, Research Accelerated by You. This is a lupus data platform where people with lupus and caregivers share information about their lupus experience to help researchers accelerate development of new treatments and improve disease outcomes. You can be a ray of hope to ensure a bright future for lupus research by sharing your lupus experience. Check out more at lupus.org. And to listen to additional episodes of the Expert Series, please go to lupus.org forward slash the Expert Series. To learn more about living well with lupus, you can find additional resources on the National Resource Center on Lupus at lupus.org forward slash resources. And to speak with a health educator, please go to lupus.org forward slash health educator or call 800-558-0121. And lastly, to connect with others with lupus from all over the world, I invite you to check out our online support community where you can talk with others, find emotional support, and discuss practical insights for coping with the daily challenges of lupus. Find the community at lupus.org forward slash resources forward slash lupus connect. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you.